Hi guys, welcome to Made In, a podcast hosted by Asian women to tell stories of our culture and beyond. Made In is a safe living room space where we talk about our upbringing, the dilemmas in our lives, and highlight the beautiful work of POC people that keep us inspired. Thank you for joining us. Hey Jazz, we're back everybody. We're back. Hi everyone. We have a really special guest today. I personally call her my Dede, which means older sister in Kanto. But truly, she's such a huge mentor of mine. Um, Zaya Tong is on the show. She's a broadcaster, science journalist, and writer. She's also on the board of the WWF International, I believe. And I think that we talked about this. You know, you never really see many Asian female hosts on science networks. And she was, you know, someone that immediately jumped out to me. I always saw her and I was like, this is so cool really made me feel like iconic, iconic. like I could do something like that or something even close to that. Just seeing myself, myself or like someone who looked like me on the screen was something huge. So that was a big thing. And she was on um, Discovery Channel's Daily Planet, also the author of The Reality Bubble, a book about hidden perceptions of one's world and, you know, seeing it through different lenses, which I thought was a really interesting thing. So I think we hopefully we can talk more about it today. And overall, she's like a badass, really outspoken, you know, on not just environmentalism and, you know, she you've been doing that for a long time, but also, you know, targeting systemic racism and, you know, for human rights for all. So we're just so happy to have you on the show. And thank you so much for making the time, Zaya. Woo, welcome. Happy Jasmine. Those slations. It's wonderful. <laughs> I know that's your favorite term. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's a joy. It's great. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, well, we're going to start off by asking you our uh, traditional question. Where are you made in? And you can take this wherever you would like. It can be geographical, philosophical, whatever speaks to you today. Okay, so I'm going to give you guys an A or B choice. Do you want, um, do you want geopolitical or do you want astrophysical? Oh. Can we get both? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you can both, I suppose. Yeah, sorry, I'm like, I want to know. I want to know both. Both, all of the above. Well, geopolitically, I guess, um, I technically, in a way, I almost come from nowhere because my mom is from the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Um, now it's called North Macedonia. And my father is from the former, uh, sp- former Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of China. So as I was growing up, the the nations that my parents in essentially dissolved Mm -hmm. so it was really interesting to grow up in two places that actually kind of don't exist anymore and then i was born in england and uh, in my family we have four different passports so uh, geopolitically i'm supremely a mixed bag but if we were to look at it from sort of a super science geeky kind of uh level and then I would say that I was made in the uh, Laniakea supercluster, which is, you know, the supercluster that our own Milky Way galaxy is in. And that's like 100,000 different galaxies. When you, when you look at it, it almost looks like, you know, a synapse of like a brain. It's absolutely beautiful. And the term actually comes from the Hawaiian, um, which means immense heaven. So wow. it's kind of cool in a way that we're all technically made in heaven. Wow. That's... I love that. That's crazy. Heaven and nowhere, which is ultimately quite Zen, which is quite Asian. Yeah, <laughs> it feels really Zen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like you were saying, growing up, when you think about, I guess, your identity, like, did you grow up feeling like you had a really strong Asian culture? Like, you know, just like right away, like identifying and knowing that you were Asian or just like even some of the family values or stuff like that. Is that something that you aligned with growing up, maybe in school and throughout all the places that you moved like to you know across the globe it's weird because you know when when i came to canada and i still i'm a little bit cheeky that way sometimes i meet asians that i don't feel are nearly as asian as i am yeah even though oh, I'm a, it's true I know what you mean because you know i grew up in hong kong you know i spoke and i still speak cantonese mm-hmm. and um i think that made a huge difference because i grew up inside of asian culture even though it was you know asian british culture being hong kong and being the colony that it was But um, I grew up and, you know, my Asian grandparents, super, super Asian. Um, But at the same time, my grandmother on my dad's side, she was actually American. She's Chinese, but like from Winnemucca. So my grandmother's side of the family were the Chinese people who came over to build railways and do all that sort of stuff, even though they 
they didn't have that once they moved back to Asia, once my grandmother moved to, to Hong Kong, she became, you know, super Asian. I, I don't think she ever even spoke English, to be honest. Mm. So yeah, Asian culture is very, very strong in me. But then of course you've moved to a place like Canada mm. and what do you have? You end up with your sort of weird, you know, Chinatowns used to be a thing, but they're not really a strong thing anymore. And so there are the Richmonds or the, you know, the Markhams. Yeah. But I am uh, the kind of person that weekly, you know, before the before the pandemic needed to go for my Asian foot massage because yeah. I'm that person. <laughs> and also need to go to my Asian supermarket to buy my Asian fruit. And so that part of me is still, um, yeah, very strong. Like, you know, yeah. it's just it's just a part of me. So I can't really separate it. But it's the, the same thing for the European side, though, right? Like, that's just mm-hmm. equally there. And so um, it's just super hard to be racist when you're, when you're biracial, right? Because you automatically know that uh, you have two kind of civilizational inputs in your mind. And, and you know that some are really wonderful for some things and some are really wonderful for other things. Mm. I saw that you um, went to school in UBC and then also McGill. So I guess most of your maybe later life... Um, during that time was uh, based in Canada, where we kind of have the privilege to have a bit more diverse um, people around us. And also being kind of biracial, was there ever any moment where you maybe trying to find that balance of, oh, I want to be Asian at this kind of situation, or I want to be white, and maybe kind of going into the TV industry too, where, you know, we didn't get to see any biracial or Asian representation. How did you kind of develop into being comfortable just who you are without having to ever like explain yourself every time? You know, I think, I think I've been lucky in a way um, because even though uh, my, you know, my breed or my kind, you know, it was quite rare when I was growing up, right? Like uh, when, mm-hmm. now in Vancouver, there are so many mixed marriages and mixed couples, mm-hmm. a lot of mixed couples, that there's a lot of um, little half-breed offspring like me now. <laughs> so I'm a little sure. more common. When I first moved to Canada, um, of course, I didn't know very many Eurasians, but I was lucky enough that when I was growing up in Hong Kong, I had, my good friends were all Eurasian. Oh, so we were all the same. Cool. Um, we were, you know, like my, one of my friends was Norwe- is Norwegian and Chinese. The other one is Welsh and Chinese. Um, but we kind of all look the same, which is that we can't quite pin it. I think mm-hmm. the hard thing is, so I mean, I felt supported. I never felt um, like a total freak. <laughs> but I, I think that you always feel like an outsider because when I go to Macedonia, for example, uh, everybody there thinks I'm Asian. Everybody right. immediately thinks I'm Asian. And then when I go to Hong Kong, everybody thinks I'm a Guaymoy, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Everybody thinks I'm white yeah. or, mm-hmm. or totally Caucasian. And then actually real in shock if I speak to them in Cantonese. <laughs> that happens even here quite often. And I, I can't figure that out. So I'm like, can't, you must be able to tell that I'm somewhat Asian here. You One must, of you. Yeah. You would try to figure that, but no, no. So you never fit in anywhere properly. Yeah. And then, um, you know, whenever you, whenever there's those check boxes, I'm literally check other. Oh, wow. Like, that's actually interesting because I was thinking about it. Like, would you like mind telling us how your parents met actually? Cause I guess at that time, you know, it's actually kind of rare. And we had yeah. a friend of ours, Sophie on the show early on, um, talking about being of mixed race background. She's Chinese and she's, is it Canadian? Yeah. Just Canadian. Canadian yeah. yeah. And well, you know, there's obviously background there, but, um, you know, she just always feel like, you know, the whole thing is like not being Asian enough, not being white enough. It was always that kind of thing uh, for her. But I actually am interested, like, how did your parents meet? I, I just want to know. They met because they both were super into the Beatles. Oh. <laughs> they didn't really speak like my mom didn't speak English. And, you know, I think my dad at the time spoke better English than my mom. My dad's the, the Chinese one. Mm. Mom's the Macedonian one. Mm-hmm. And they both just loved music and dancing. And so this was like in London and they were both super, you know, like groovy yeah. people. My dad yeah. had long hair and like all that sort of stuff. And my mom was like, you know, super into her, like, you know, go-go boots and the, the whole bit, right? Wow. They were, and so they were just one of those first um, mixed couples. And they, you know, once my mom moved with my dad to Hong Kong, then of course she also ended up meeting friends uh, that had married 
into Asian families. So then you end up end up meeting other people who are mixed couples. But it was rare enough that my friend Helga, um, that I'm still friends with, that we've been friends since we were five years old, when she was born, she was in the newspapers. Like people oh, had wow. seen her. Like it was almost, you know, I mean, she'd be okay with it. I don't mean to compare us to, to breeds of dogs or anything like that. I'm not trying to, you know, it's so tricky. But, you know, they've never seen a, a Norwegian Asian person. Like that was so new that she was in the newspaper. So. So yeah, it's kind of, but it's neat though. I love that. Yeah. Um, did you feel like as you were kind of getting into uh, broadcasting, were you ever like, did you ever feel a sense of maybe like tokenism or, you know, they wanted your face to be kind of represented because it was so unique? And was it kind of feeling we're using that to your advantage or how did you kind of sit with that? I think I'm lucky because here in Canada, there's somebody who's super iconic, who's a science broadcaster, and that's David Suzuki, yeah. who's been a friend now, who who paved that way and opened that door, you know, 50 years before I did, in mm-hmm. a sense, or 40 years before I did. So there was always a very prominent Asian face um, in, in Canadian culture. And I do think that Asian television, like, I think one of the issues is that while we see some um, Asian faces in Canadian broadcasting, what we don't see is kind of more behind the scenes, right? Like, you, you know, the producers, the writers, yeah. that's the whole staff. That's where you need to see a lot of that diversity mix start to happen. And I'm really doing a lot of that kind of work behind the scenes right now, too, in multiple arenas. And so, yeah, I care very much about more than just having, like, the face on television or the one figurehead. That's, in a sense, tokenism, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right. No, I, I think that's like really, I mean, like I said, it's really important just for me growing up seeing you. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Like not amazing, but you know, I just hadn't seen that before. Obviously all the shows I watched from sitcoms, everything, you know, all white cast. And it also really speaks to, yeah, behind the scenes there needs to be more because the stories are going to be so much more different, you know, once we have more people mm-hmm. of different backgrounds in it. And I think that's so important, but growing up, I just need to ask, like, were you always, interested in like, the sciences like stem stuff like that because that's something i think my mom or a lot of asian parents want their kids to get into but in a kind of way that it's not so natural like in a way that it feels forced but for you i feel like that's something that is from the beginning always inspired me i think i'm untraditional in a certain way because you know the first show that i hosted was an avant-garde arts show mm. which is Ed, right on ctv Amazing. which was a wild, wonderful, amazing show. Um, and the executive producer and the senior producer who became some of my closest friends, um, you know, black and East Indian. And that was a show where there was, there was so much flavor, as my friend McLean used to always say, because it was just this beautiful mix, right? And it was really colorful and it was really, um, it was super, super, super creative. In terms of the, the, the sort of STEM and the science broadcasting, for sure, I've I've loved David Attenborough since I was really young. I was so obsessed with watching David Attenborough videos that my friends would have to come over and they couldn't watch their favorite soaps. They would have to watch (laughs) tortoises honking. You know what I mean? Like that would be like they'd know when they were coming over that that was going to happen. And then I met Jane Goodall when I was 21. And she was doing a talk in London and I was standing in the back row and I saw her and I, you know, and she'd saved an entire mountain um, with the chimpanzees and like yeah. I'm in the back and my eyes are just like literally oh just, water, just like streaming just like <laughs> you know when you get those like shivers because you're just so in yeah. awe mm-hmm. so I went up to her then and um, I've told the story many times but it's true like I went up to her and she signed a postcard for me that just said follow your dreams oh. and I have that postcard somewhere. but it was just like you know and then so years later when I interviewed her on Daily Planet, I, like I'm crying again yeah. with her. I just like, why are you Did crying? Did you have a postcard? <laughs> you have it? Yeah. But I think that, you know, so I really, that was sort of the entry for me. But also, you know, everything depends, your interest really depends on how interesting your teachers are, you know? And I had some boring freaking science <laughs> and math teachers in, in high school yeah. for sure. And even in university, um, things that just put me to sleep. And so really, I'm more of an autodidact in that sense that I learned other, like when I started, I started realizing like this door opened because the teachers were more interesting or I could, I could read things on my own and, and, 
and find the fascination and the wonder and the awe and the enchantment. And that's where I've always gone with a lot of the science broadcasting is just really wanting to be like, look at this siphonophore, look at this incredible creature in the ocean and everything, you know what I mean? And I do believe that when you fall in love with the world that you'll want to fight to protect it, right? So uh, that's part and parcel of that sort of environmentalist streak is like when I was growing up, not every single animal was almost extinct, yeah. right? Like, mm. you know, and I can't even fathom what that would be like for most kids growing up and be like, I love lions, lions are almost gone. I love, you know what I mean? Like whales, like almost everything is disappearing and, um, and people are so distracted. Yeah. And that's, you know, like the French word for entertainment is divertissement, right? It is literally distraction to be diverted and we're not paying attention to some of the critical things. And Evie knows because we follow each other on Twitter, but you know, if I, if I tweet some beautiful animal you know, those ones get all the likes and the retweets. But if you post anything about extinction yeah. or animal rights, anything that concerns really helping animals, we're pretty selfish animals. We do not pay attention to that. And and that I find pretty, pretty troubling. Yeah. Yeah. I watched one of your interviews um, when you were talking about your book. You said something that really resonated with me that we are the only species that really deprive of other members of its own species from being able to survive and thrive. And it really, really hit me hard yeah. thinking about that. And the fact that, you know, even now in COVID, I'm noticing a lot of like individualism that's really, you know, evident in our communities where personally growing, I moved to Canada when I was 10. So I have a lot of, you know, memories of living in Korea with my parents where, you know, community-based uh, was something in the forefront. So like I grew up going to elementary school. If I had a cold, I would wear a mask so that other people wouldn't get infected. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that we have to even rewire and educate people now of the reason why we have to wear a mask. It's like such a different um, mentality. And you summarize it so perfectly that like, why can't we um, uplift each other? Yeah. And we're the only ones that's really depriving of everyone around us. Well, I think that's the thing, right? Like, one of the beautiful things about Asian culture and one of the reasons why they've been so much more successful at containing COVID is because it's a culture that values collectivism mm -hmm. and, and protecting the collective. Whereas we live in a much more individualistic society that is like, you're on your own, yeah. figure out how you're going to survive this, whether it's economically or whether it's, you know, you know, your own health. And so there are wonderful aspects of Asian culture um, and value systems that I think we need to celebrate. And then there's other aspects that, you know, um, and I'm just going to bring it up now because we were talking about it um, via Twitter, Evie and I, Bling Empire, for example. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Hot topic. I'm excited. It's a horrible caricature yeah. of Asian culture because it's mm -hmm. really, it's, it's trying to do the exact same thing as those, you know, what are those real housewives yeah. or any of those sort of things. Chinese people or Asian people trying to compete by, by out capitalisting other capitalists. Mm. Like capitalism isn't necessarily a, a culture. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It, it's more like a disease. Yeah. <laughs> and so right. Yeah. In a disease uh, is not necessarily a great thing. And then also, you know, I think it's rather repulsive and revolting that these are kids of like arms dealers and defense I know. contractors. Yeah. Like that Minashe woman, like her dad, the reason she has $1.2 billion is because they sell weapons. Was building the interrogation camps in Vietnam. Like they were enslaving, brutalizing, raping Vietnamese people. Yeah. And they were going to put those people up there and be like, this is amazing. Desirable. Fuck that. I know. No way. <laughs> and like the, the things I saw most about it was like, especially for that woman. And I'm not saying like just to drag her, all of them. Like, you know, when I was watching, I couldn't watch, I'd say like half the episode. I'd like to have to cringe and hide because it's so cringy. It's like, you know, the one woman who's like, oh, tell me which diamonds are fake at this table. Like, what the fuck? And the thing is, like, I don't feel like we don't have we don't have that enough Asian representation on TV yet for this to be like one of the first few things to be out there, because like. Like I said, when COVID hit, like, literally, they're like, every Asian has COVID. Like, that's how stupid mm -hmm. the world is. And I just feel like now everyone's not everyone's going to think like we're all rich like that. But our values are so I feel like our values, there's so many greater things to share about Asian values, you know, whether they be Chinese or whatever, that collectivism, and it gets so lost in that show, like you were saying. But it's just funny, you know, people were like, I really admire that, like the daughter of the arms dealer, she's like the best one in the show. And I'm like, 
this whole show is <laughs> like that's crazy like they don't work and they, it's almost like they don't question where the money comes. It's, it's just confusing to be even like mm-hmm. signing up for that. Yeah, I mean, and I feel the same way because I understand, you know, you don't want to be the person, uh, you know, um, each individual is an individual and fine. Okay. She may have sold the company for $1.2 billion, whatever. Yeah. But individually, when you get into them, like the other one, the, the Buddhist, right? Yeah. Here's a person okay. who's supposed to be representing Buddhism. Yeah. And starts talking in the episodes about non-attachment, lots of lots of these little like rituals and stuff like that. Yeah. But then starts telling people that the way he deals with life is through retail therapy, yeah. <laughs> which is total consumerism and attachment, right? So you know they produce these people who are caricatures, hypocrites, and there are you know so many. And of course, even growing up in Hong Kong, right? Mm-hmm. Hong Kong has always been super hyper, hyper capitalist. Yeah, crazy. Um, every single one of those MTR stops, you exit into a shopping mall. Yeah. Like, because mm-hmm. every single one is a shopping mall. And then, you know, even as a kid, like, people would act like, my game on the MTR when I was a child was spot the fake Louis Vuitton. Like, yeah. that's what we used to do when we were children, because yeah. that was the game. Because, you know, there were already so many fakes and things like that that were going on there. So it's not to say that that isn't a part of the culture. But when you see why there's an umbrella movement, when you see why there's so, uh, you know, there's people living, you know, in the size of coffins in Hong Kong, yeah. really, it's only the hyper, hyper, hyper elite that we're sort of, quote unquote, celebrating who are living this lifestyle, whereas the vast majority of people um, are really suffering under this mm-hmm. system. So I, I don't think we're oblivious to the fact that, you know, we love consuming the one percenters of the world, you know, classic example is like the Kardashians, we can't look away. I think it's really interesting, you know, the very first blockbuster movie that came out was Crazy Rich Asians, which also highlighted really rich, affluent Asian lifestyle. And I'm not surprised that with um, Bling Empire, that that lifestyle was something that was going to sell. And of course, Hollywood just wants to make money. Mm -hmm. But you know, then there's amazing stories like Minari that's going to come out in February where it actually talks about the Mm -hmm. American um, experience. So I think that contrast is really conflicting. And I only got through half of the first episode and I couldn't bear my own time to invest in watching it. But my roommate was heavily invested. So she kind of gave me like the rundown. But she told me about this one um, part when, yeah, that uh, the Buddhist guy hired a shaman and this girl was like, you know, it was a really amazing opportunity. And all she had to say was like, you know, like I couldn't decide what color handbag I wanted to get Yeah, yeah, And like, even though it was probably so scripted and so fake, it made me just hurt. Yeah. But the one part, I think that maybe the only holy grail of that was that rich Christine lady who was like protecting her husband about his infidelity. I'm so sorry, those who are calling this spoilers. I'm sorry um listening but yeah protecting her husband about his infidelity uh infertility about them having it yeah all right yeah um i thought that was the only kind of like aspect to a real korean dynamic asian dynamic that could happen um was there anything else in the show as you're watching that was like somewhat truth that we could be maybe happy that there was an asian representation at all on netflix You know, it was really nice to see somebody, you know, that main character, the Korean guy, I think is like a middle class Korean guy who's just Korean American and who's, you know, sure he's like a model or whatever he's doing, (laughs) but he's, you know, he's the one who's supposed to be the balance, right? The the normal that, that we can sort of see in there. And, you know, if anything, I suppose I'm grateful that there's that. But I just think it's really sad that the only way in which we feel that we can have an all Asian cast is if we show them out competing with their bling. And the same thing happens in Instagram. There was one of those rich girl shows in, in Vancouver. Yeah. Too. Oh, and, you know, people like to watch this stuff because it's, you know, because they like to shit on it, I suppose, too, right? Like the gluttony and all that sort of stuff. But it really does inject some pretty warped values into our young people. And that's why you see this insane culture of envy on Instagram. And Instagram is essentially another shopping mall. Mm. That's all it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? With people turned into mannequins to pimp, pimp their wares. Yeah. And I feel like it's actually interesting because you grew up in Hong Kong and I used to go there every two years and that's where my parents are from too. And my mom has always said to me, she's really sad that, you know, she didn't, know much about anything except for consumerism a lot of it was that you know you're saying you were counting the fake louis 
I just remember at every subway stop, there's like a Chanel in every subway stop. Like that's just a crazy thing. Subway stop. Yeah. Like subway, like, oh, and then there's a mall. And that's like, I remember that about Hong Kong. And I, you know, I think you've been back too. And it's still sort of the same like that. Um, But I think what, like, what I kind of want to focus on is like this whole idea of like, you know, you, you went from being young and like counting those like movie bags. That's all you knew. You know, that was like Hong Kong. That was like the bustle. That was the craziness. And then really, like, I think you, I wouldn't say like flip fields, but like, you know, this whole other world was like out there and for you. And now that's like you, what you're pursuing. You're talking about, you know, environmentalism and other beings and, you know, being just a part of this entire world. We're just like humans. It's not like we own this world or whatever. Um, but a big thing that I've seen is like, there's a huge whiteness movement around environmentalism, which I, you know, at first I'm like, maybe they're right. You know, like they're saying like, like the whole idea of recycling and, reusing i think that my parents were already doing that but it wasn't like said like that you know so then when the whole campaigns came in they were like oh my god do you guys even recycle do you even do that and it's just like i feel like we've been eating the whole part of the animal like you know like those small things like if we do eat an animal it's like we use every part of it there's other ways like my mom has a whole tupperware drawer and these are small examples but i just don't feel like whiteness has ownership on environmentalism but i don't really know about the history of it so like what like what is your take on this? Because I just feel like it's just a strange thing. I have so many takes on this. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. But I just you know I mean from the Asian perspective, yeah. I mean obviously you know when we look at Asian cultures, it's actually in Japan that you see those terrific zero waste culture. Um, you know some of the towns and some of the cities where they've actually been able to go full cycle. When you look at Asia, despite the fact that you know, China is a whole, a big coal user. That's absolutely true. China is also such um, an incredible country when it comes to engineering and getting their shit together. When China needs to do something yeah. because they've had so many engineers in, in their political system, they get it done fast. So even when it's like those bullet rail systems, yeah. um, those high-speed rail systems, hundreds of thousands of kilometers, and these things go incredibly quickly too. Like I really wish that um, North America would borrow from Chinese culture and Chinese engineers instead of demonizing Chinese people and Chinese scientists and Chinese engineers along with the state, because there's a lot of stuff that we could do a lot faster and fix a lot more if we actually looked to other nations. Um, Mm. I wrote about that in a recent article for Pop-Up Magazine. The same thing with like, if you look to the Netherlands, for example, this is a country that's the second largest exporter of food. A tiny, they're tiny, they're minuscule. Like, I don't know how many of the Netherlands you could fit in Ontario, but a a heck of a (laughs) But at the same time, the environmental movement is really quite dominated um, by white saviors yeah. in many ways. Mm-hmm. When we go back into the sort of capitalist uh, perspective, the problem is that it is this white capitalist institutionalized system that is responsible for the vast yeah. degradation that we see today. So we need to really shift and move the people who are um, you know, sitting at those tables of power right now. The other thing that is critical as well um, is the fact that in an environmental movements, and you may know of the Extinction Rebellion, I don't know if you've heard of them or not, um, quite a strong movement, quite a beautiful radical movement in many ways. And there's some really great people working in this movement. But at the same time, last year, there was a very large, well, there was a fracture because there was a small group of people that really wanted to separate environmental justice from social justice. They were like, hey, let us work with the Trump people. Hey, let us go, you know what I mean? But we don't want to build in, you know, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color. And so this is this white movement. And it created a huge rupture, especially in the States. A lot of people really fought against a small group again called XR America, because they were like, don't, don't you see actually that the people who are most impacted by environmental degradation, whether it's the water, whether it's the super funds, they're all actually living in these spaces. These are the people who are all ready to rise right now because they're pissed off yeah. with what's being done to their water, their land, their space, their air, like Sarnia, all these sorts of things. And if you cut them out just to work with the white middle class people, because you think that that's going to... It's, it's such an insulting slap in the yeah. face. So movements need to be less white yeah. um, and movements that actually work with other movements and work in solidarity with indigenous movements like we saw here mm-hmm. um, in Canada 
those like with a lot of those blockades, that's a powerful and smart and strategic movement. And then at the organizational institutional level, we need to see better and bigger ways of thinking, bigger worldviews. I mean, you know that that's what I've been, my, my book is about mm -hmm. blind spots. Mm -hmm. And one of the quotes in it is by uh, Paul Bain, which is, one does not see what one does not see when one is blind, yeah. right? You, you can't, you don't even know what you don't know. And so a lot of the times, you know, when you, whether you have people who are from the North or from the global South, if everybody just has a, a capitalistic sort of worldview, that's one worldview. In the same way that there was a difference between when we used to see things from a religious worldview, then to a scientific worldview, to a capitalist worldview, what we're really missing is a sacred worldview, right? And that's one of the things that Indigenous peoples have. They have a very different relationship to the land that they are from, where they know the trees, where they know the soil, where they understand the cycles and systems. And that's where there's some commonality when you tap back into Asian culture, because Asian culture is inherently very cyclical. Yeah. It understands cycles and it actually has a deep respect for nature. And that's what we have to kind of um, imbue ourselves with again. And as a side tangent, super side tangent, <laughs> which is not necessarily related, but I'm getting into aquaculture, Ooh, uh, aquascaping, okay. sorry. And aquascaping has nothing to do with manscaping, as people keep joking. <laughs> <laughs> There's this one guy named uh, Takashi Amano who passed away several years ago. He's Japanese, but he creates these beautiful, like, they're, they're so magical, these underwater aquarium landscapes. They look like, they look like old, you know, those beautiful Asian mountains yeah. that are rocky and craggy with, mm -hmm. they're gorgeous with great little fish that have a lot of space to swim and that's part of that real sort of like from the zen rock garden to the aquascaping this really meditative reflective space of connecting with nature mm -hmm. and asian culture has that indigenous culture has that and I don't want to say that white culture doesn't have that, but current white culture is very, you know, it's very parkland. It's very like, it's, you know, Disneyland. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. Manufactured. Yeah. 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 And, and so nature has become something very, very separate um, from, from, you know, the sort of Northern industrialized perspective. And we, we need to fix that. Yeah. When you said, you know, we have a blind spot or, don't know like the sacred worldview, I couldn't even picture what that looks yeah. like because I don't think it was taught in school. You know, even speaking about indigenous um, practices, like there was nothing that came to my mind that kind of painted that picture. So I think that's such a, a good point. And how you mentioned, like, I watched a lot of interviews of you talking about your book. <laughs> One another point, <laughs> another point that I took away, you mentioned was that, you know, we did, we put away all these like uh, stuff we don't want to see. Like, you know, you mentioned like slaughterhouses are now being pushed out into the city, out of the city so that we don't have to see mm -hmm. it. All these blind spots that we're uh, seeing because we don't want to see the truth. A question that I kind of want to ask that was like a bit more timely. Um, personally, in my like Instagram timeline, I'm seeing a lot of people who are on vacations at Turks and Caicos at Tulum. Um, and we kind of touched on how, you know, North America have a bit more individualistic um, um, tendency about like not trying to have a collective mindset. What is that blind spot for them to think that they have the privilege yeah. to go and do this? And how can I sit with this anger that I have <laughs> seeing this blatantly across my social media? Well, I think that wealth always has its own privilege, right? Like, whether it's racism or not, right? So I was thinking about this the other day, I was thinking about the fact that truly, really rich people of many different colors, whether they're uh, Arabs, whether they're Chinese, they don't experience racism the same way yeah. as say, a rich Moroccan and a poor Moroccan will tell you two very different stories about racism. And it's the same thing when you're talking about this sort of Instagram life, right? Like um, if you're rich, I mean, right now you can fly to Dubai and you can actually get it. There's vaccine holidays. Yeah. So if you want the vaccine, you can skip the whole line. You can go to, you can go, go away on a holiday to do that. So yeah, we make, we don't, um, we don't have a society where laws apply equally to all people. I think we all, we know that best from the experience that we just had with Donald Trump, 
right? Like we know that some people, if they're wealthy, then their wealth basically puts them above the law. So people should be irate and should be really, really frustrated by that because um, it's really unequal. I mean, that's one thing that Asian culture does very well is it shames people. We don't do that here mm -hmm. as much, but Asian culture, they will put up a billboard of your face <laughs> and shame the shit out of you. Yeah. Don't do this shit anymore. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I kind of think we should do a little bit of that. Like, you know, I mean, here we have cancel culture where you kind of just cancel people. And I don't actually really love, I don't really love the, the pylons that I see on the internet. I think they can be really brutalizing for some people. I think people... But I've seen some of the stuff happen. I think that some people would probably need deep therapy yeah. based on the way the internet actually piles on people. I think it can be too wicked. But I think Asian shame culture is a little, it's, it's not as severe in a way, right? You see it, you're like, oh my God, I don't want to be that. And, and it forces you to not do it. But then the problem with Asian culture is conformity. Yeah. There's way too yes. much conformity in Asian culture, which is seriously problematic because that's what makes... Asian culture, very cog machine, you know, on the one hand, I think, okay, if I was running an Asian culture, uh, uh, country like China, for example, I've got 1.4 to 1.7 billion people to manage for sure. I don't want them to all go completely batshit crazy because our planet can't sustain that. You know what I mean? If they all start getting super radical, I imagine that's a really hard situation. But, and so that's why they want conformity. That's why they want a social credit system. They want everybody just doing stuff so that you can deal with this large, large amount of people. Um, and Chinese people and Asian people can be more docile in that sense. Um, they will conform in that sense. But we need them to conform in radical ways mm. as opposed to conform in really status quo boring ways. Yeah, and I would agree with that just being like, and also I think here in white adjacent ways, like, it's so it's so crazy to think back to Asia and just thinking about like, you know, I know in Hong Kong and in China, it's the same. But when they do see a white person, it's still like an amazing situation. You know, it's always like you can speak English. Oh, my God. Like you belong up here. Can I get a picture? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty like and I think that in Korea, correct me if I'm wrong, Jazz, but like not that if you're white, but like you can speak English. Like that's an amazing thing. There's like a whole admiration for mm -hmm. America, like basically, I think mm -hmm. that culture um, but I think it, it's so like we live in two different worlds. I don't think America knows anything about Asia. And I think it's the same way. Like we see those good things. We see what believes like to be the American dream. But then when you're actually there, it's like so it's so different. Living in both worlds, I guess, like you've seen both sides, obviously. Yeah. And I think that it's a bit strange because, you know, um, Obviously, now the United States isn't, yeah. you know, it's a civilization that's largely kind of in decline, you know, when you go there now, uh, versus if you go to Asia, like you can see the future in the landscape and in the architecture of Asia, um, you know, whether it's, you know, even, even the 1980s in Hong Kong, there was a, you know, there was an escalator that went up the side of the mountain. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like the, the weird glitzy sort of futuristic stuff. I think that if most, you know, U.S. citizens or even Canadians without passports were given an opportunity to travel to, to Asia, I think they would be shocked by what they would see, you know, because it is the future. And, um, and that's the other thing, too, though. Geopolitically, I ended up watching this um, video that my dad sent to me, which is the fact that despite the fact that we really demonize China, despite the fact that I'll tell you China's um, state power has some serious issues, especially with what's going on with the Uyghurs, which I wrote about yeah. of course, in the book, um, with the disappearing of people. I'm not here to say that I support that, but I do know that also Asian culture and, and, and China, they're really sick of the U.S. imperialism, the U.S. exceptionalism, the U.S. militarism. No, they, they really want to create a force to stop the states from, who, who goes around and bullies every single nation on earth from coming over and suddenly saying that they have the rights to the South China Seas or whatever. Yeah. So in the video, it talked about the fact that, you know, can the U.S. imagine what it would be like if the U.S. was surrounded by um, Asian warships right now, yeah. Chinese warships or Chinese drones. Like how how under they scare shitless. Yeah, yeah. they would be absolutely shitting themselves. Yeah. And yet, yeah, this is sort of very normalized. Like they can go over there with their warships, yeah. or you know, you know, have an entire history of bombing people uh, as well. Yeah. So 
And then this is a completely a non sequitur, but I, I was reminded when we were talking about indigenous culture a little bit earlier, I don't know if you guys know, but there was a great documentary on it. It's lost uh, to my memory right now, but it was really about how there's a, been a big intersection, especially in BC, between indigenous and Asian culture, um, because when a lot of the Asian people moved over from China um, to build the railways, they were so ostracized that the only people they could befriend were the indigenous people wow. who were also ostracized. And so yeah. some of them ended up, you know, like, you know, having kids together. And so there's an interesting sort of subsection, you know, subgroup of people in BC who are half, um, half indigenous, half First Nations and half Chinese, yeah. which is a beautiful wow. thing. But during the time when some of the indigenous people were taken away to reservations, uh, to, sorry, to, to the schools, What's incredible is some of the last um, native speakers were these were these kind of Eurasian, not like indigenous Asian kids who who escaped being taken away to to those residential schools. So they were some of the keepers of the language, wow. which is really wow. quite beautiful. So anyway, this is just a, a different kind of um, different kind of mix, but I but I love it. I just think it's really beautiful that there's been some solidarity. Um, all along on the West Coast between Indigenous nations and Asian nations. And it's fundamentally because people are bullies. Yeah. Like, that's the first mm -hmm. thing, right? Like, that's what it really came down to. They were being bullied by a colonialist state power and had to befriend each other because there were a lot of assholes in power at that time. Yeah. 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 I I think, um, yeah, having um, a close friend who's also biracial, you know, listening to her talking about like, you know, feeling othered and like in certain aspects, she's not Asian enough, she's not white enough. And it just with like the rise of BLM last uh, in June, um, just kind of feeling this ways that like, am I being like a gatekeeper to Asian communities, especially with the whole bone broth which thou shall not be named ever again. But, um, you know, I felt like, am I just being so protective of Asian culture saying that white people can't do it? And like, I really don't think that was like the root of our um, conversations. But even with the Mahjong, um, you know, I was really uh, interested to find out that there was this whole Jewish community that also played Mahjong. Um, and, you know, how there was that kind of like, combination and collaborativeness of that and just even hear about your story with the indigenous and the Chinese in BC I think there is definitely need to be more openness about you know not gatekeeping and sharing and you know being able to have these stories that we can share and you know share experiences is also like really important well I think one thing which is uh to be on the other side of this like I mean there's two sides of it and depends how you're doing it and depends how you're how you're monetizing it and, yeah. and how thoughtful you're being today however that said the biggest rip-off culture in the world is Asian culture don't think for mm -hmm. a second because it is you go to not all place and they have taken whatever sort of western culture thing they've renamed it they've switched the logo I mean for crying out loud there's an entire town that's like there's like a fake Paris. Co-opting. They're not co-opting. They're co-opting the whole country. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's a very Asian thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. So we should never kind of forget that. Uh, I know that, I know that it can be tricky in, in the space that we're in. Um, if people, if people do just sort of monetize off others, but I think that there's something, there's something, there's something in honoring other cultures as well. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know, there's something that, that I kind of like about, I don't think everything, I don't think everything is exploitative. I think that there needs to be, you know, it's a case by case sort of basis. For sure. And it's so complicated. There's no right answer. Cause again, we're just learning on the fly, really, you know, we like basically no one, there's no right or wrong. There's no exact thing. Everything's in the gray. And so, for me, it's just really important to take it case by case. I mean, the Mahjong thing I just saw was fucking outrageous, obviously. And I'm going to call it out. I don't know what the Mahjong thing is. Oh, oh my God. Let me tell you. I mean, um, I, there's these... broth. I don't know about the Mahjong thing. Oh, my God. There are these three white um, women from Dallas, Texas. They got into the game of Mahjong and they're, they thought that they needed a... A, a refresh, a refresh. refresh. That's the word they use. So... Yeah, so then they made this like really 
uh, cutesy little website where they're talking, yeah, talking about their inspiration behind creating these new sets of mahjong tiles. And it totally, um, you know, took away from the traditions of like the colors and the icons and they tried to like Helvetica it pretty much and then yeah. try to sell it um, and they would sell it for like $400 and they instead of honoring the Chinese culture they said that it was an American version of Mahjong which was trying to be them like scapegoat about it but yeah um, it was and then it just got blown out of proportion and then now I think they're discontinuing or something like that yeah I mean at the end of the day you know, when things get really complex, I think it's really helpful to just look at values, you know, and, 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 you know, honor is a value. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a very Asian value, right? Honoring people, honoring culture. Mm -hmm. I think you're right, very right to say that honor is important. Um, honor something if you're going to actually make a, make a change to it, do it in an honorable way. And the other thing is really, you know, what we're seeing today, which is decency, which is something else, which is another sort of value um, that I think is really underrated, just being decent, mm -hmm. you know? And there's just, my grandfather used to speak in Chinese proverbs. I didn't understand what he was saying half the mm -hmm. time, but he's one of those people who spoke in, you know, like he's so wise and uh, like having your own personal sort of Confucius. Mm -hmm. And those are the sorts of things that I really hope that we can dig up. And I hope you guys can dig up on your podcast, those people who are those thinkers to remind us of some of the, the really beautiful wisdom that we have in Asian culture that we don't necessarily get a chance to see because we're, you know, being Asian blingified. <laughs> yeah, they should have done a show on that. I would be, that's so cool. It would be like a whole lifetime of learning. Like one big thing for my year this year is like just get into my history. Like I don't understand it a lot. Um, you know, Zaya, the way you're talking, like I talked to my mom about China a lot with the Uyghur camps and stuff like that. And obviously I think it's fucking wrong, but um, I've been to China myself and, um, you know, to demonize billions of people, you know, it's and, you know, even the diaspora is pretty insane. Like, I, I, I really felt like the people there, I'm talking about ordinary people, the bus driver, the taxi driver. I felt like I don't speak Mandarin, but it felt like homeliness to me. Like they looked out for us for no, you know, that's the value that I want to know more about that Confucianism, that, you know, the caring for other people and collectivism like that stuff is unfortunately hopefully doesn't get lost in this capitalist world and i think that's like really important because right now when we talk about china and you know since the cold war since forever it's always been like demons like demons and i, I get it like i get it but again when you talk about tech and you talk about the actual people in there and the values they hold like the, i'm just saying the ordinary person it's to me it was like one time i was like damn i feel like this is like a very familial moment for me and i feel embarrassed to even sell, sell that to anybody you know what i mean well, I think that we always have to make the distinction that a state is not its people. Yeah. A state mm -hmm. is a manufactured entity. That's like saying that, you know, Americans or U.S. citizens are whoever is in power yeah. at that particular time. You can't demonize. You knew when Trump was in power that half the people weren't supporting that state, just as half of them aren't today. Mm -hmm. And every single empire is an asshole. You know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whether it's the British Empire, the Belgian Empire, the Chinese Empire, the U.S. Empire, an empire's goal is to swallow up as much as it can and to expand like a rabid beast until it sort of, you know, until it dies. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, I don't celebrate empires and I don't celebrate states, but I have no problem celebrating the culture and the people who live inside mm -hmm. it. It's a completely different thing. Yeah. I love that you reminded us about kind of, you know, reminding us of the wisdom that we can kind of hold on to in our culture, which kind of gave me the green light to not feel guilty about the Korean dramas that I'm going to binge because <laughs> the way that they really share the love for community and family members and the interactions, like I really miss, you know, that mutual respect you have for elders or someone in your community uh, in the Korean culture. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely share with you some top top shows that you're gonna have to watch but definitely I love that and you know I mean the reason why I'm also so addicted to them right now is um because I don't have to sit there and do any sort of diversity watching or anything <laughs> but, you know, the entire cast is Asian yeah. um, but that's not the reason I really love 
them. The reason I'm loving watching them, to be honest, is because I don't know who most of them are. I mean, I'm starting to wreck, but because yeah. I'm not part of their celebrity culture, it's just like in, in North American culture, if you're watching, say, Jennifer Aniston in a film, you're like, no matter how, like, 60 minutes into the film, yeah. that's Jennifer Aniston playing yeah. something yeah, else yeah, in yeah. And so actors as celebrities take away from the immersion of a film. Whereas if I'm watching a Korean film, I'm like, that person's that character now. Yeah. And I'm just mm. in it as they're that person. So I don't know that they're whoever they're supposed to be. So there's something beautiful about um, that level of quote unquote foreign media. Because if anything, it's actually more immersive. Mm -hmm. Do you have any upcoming things that you're writing that's top of mind for you? Any topics that you want to share with us to kind of keep us interested? I think that the, the most exciting, very recent development is that my paperback just came out. Just oh, yeah. Everyone yeah, caught so. one. We'll drop the link later. Let me just show yeah. you what it We will like. definitely link it and uh, definitely open to reading about Thank blind spots. So, yeah, guys, I'm not kidding. When I was doing the research before talking to her, there are so many good tidbits of just these like quick YouTube videos that I watched of her interviews and the way that she talks about like all the different uh, ways that the book is divided into and you would just your mind will be blown I was yeah. blown just she was texting me all that I'm like I know she's fucking amazing like oh. she's insane and I was like did you know there's more things in the world that's it's a size smaller than the size of your thumb and we're like <laughs> these giants <laughs> thanks you guys yeah so I mean you know that's a uh, that's a little bit of like a matrix download book, right? Like, so mm -hmm. I really, I appreciate that. It was, it was um, several years of thinking and it's all condensed into a couple hundred pages, a few hundred pages. So I hope your listeners get a chance to check it out. Yeah. The best reset to start the year, guys. I'm really excited for that to like learn about, you know, new perspectives and just see my blind spots. I would love to see that because every day, like in this convo, opening up to new blind spots. So Zaya, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us. I mean, I can't even say how many things we've learned from this and we'll continue to learn. <laughs> um, mine is open, you know, more open than just seeing ourselves as humans and the only people in this damn world. I don't know why, like, we think about that all the time, but really, like, from everything, we'll drop your Twitter link because it's true that every day, or I think every day, you drop a beautiful animal video and it's always Earthling. And it's like this animal I've never fucking seen in my life. I'm like, wow, this world is gorgeous. And I can't really see it from my condo. But thank God you're out here still showing that how important other species are. And they're part of our world. So thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Evie, Jasmine, thank you both. And like for creating an open space for opening eyes and minds. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Maiden. This episode was edited by the audio master, Josh Pardo. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at iMaiden. We would love to hear from you and keep the conversation going.